Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to uh, Vineyard Community Church. As we pick up with a brand new uh, book uh, or letter that we're studying today, we're going to look at the book of Romans. We've been working through the New Testament a chapter at a time um, for over three years now. And uh, we did the Gospels, and then we, we worked through the book of uh, Acts together. And out of the book of Acts, we started to work through the letters that Paul wrote um, to the churches, and we're, we're trying to get them as close as we can to the order that we believe they were written in. And so um, we've done a lot of work already. Remember that uh, by looking at how the churches were planted, the new, new church was uh, started, um, we were able to see Paul's, you know, how he was fitting these into his missionary journeys, the three that he took, and how he was writing back to deal with problems and situations that had happened in the church. Brand new church, uh, lots of things going on, a lot of instances and situations people don't know how to handle. And so they're looking to Paul for advice. When he gets to this uh, particular letter, now he's writing to the church in Rome, as the title makes sense, and this is not a church that he started. Um, We're not really sure exactly sure how the church in Rome started. It doesn't look like at this point Paul had ever been there before he writes, nor had the church leaders in Jerusalem. Um, He's had obviously some interaction with them uh, that that, um, started this letter. And in effect, what Paul does in this letter is he writes uh, primarily sort of a, a, a systematic theology on the Christian faith. That's what happens in the book of Romans. And so it's a, it's a fascinating book. It's also a very difficult book in places. Because as Paul starts out, you're going to see that he deals with sin and what it looks like. And really what he's dealing with is a very important concept that we have to come to grips with. And that's that all of us are guilty before God. In effect, we've all sinned. And, and if, if we don't understand that aspect, then we don't understand salvation. So he has to, he has to paint a picture of how horrible one is in order us to grasp our need for a savior and how amazing salvation is. And so the first three chapters in particular of Romans are pretty difficult chapters. They will, um, for some of you, um, maybe raise some questions. Um, You're going to see a lot of instances where it totally goes against today's culture. Uh, You will have to decide um, in, in that setting what you're going to believe in, what the culture says is right, or what the Bible says is right, you're going to have to process through some difficult things. That's part of it, and that's all good. Uh, I think that's a good thing. I think we need to be challenged. Um, you need to hold in context as we look at this letter, the grace and mercy and the love of God. You need to withhold, I think, from one of the knee-jerk responses um, that the church often has, which is to finger point at certain sins that are listed um, that, you know, I've told you in all of our studies, the church has a tendency or the religious community of the day um, prior to the church has a tendency to label one sin worse than others depending on where they're at in their culture. In Jesus' day, um, it was sinners and tax collectors. Um, the tax collectors were hated above all else in Jesus' day. The, by the the established religious community because they considered them all to be traitors. They would much rather have a murderer over to the house for dinner than a tax collector. I'm serious. They didn't allow them in the synagogues. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. They completely and totally pushed them away from everything. And we know that Jesus, when Jesus came, he didn't finger point. He didn't condemn. What did he do? He just went out and hung out with them and loved on them. And, And 
in that way was able to lead them to the truth. That's what needs to happen. So when we confront and deal with difficult issues, we don't want to be finger pointers or start talking about who God hates or anything else because we're all sinners. And that's the whole point of these first three chapters. Um, All of us, everybody in the room is a sinner desperately lost without the love of God, absolutely without hope apart from what Jesus did on the cross. That's the bottom line reality. And, and so as we go through the first chapter and, and the next couple of chapters, you'll see some stuff. And, you know, where you're challenged, then, then it hopefully will cause you to dig deeper uh, in the process. So these first three chapters are primarily about all of us having sinned. We're all guilty, in effect, before God. None of us can stand before God saying that we're good enough in our own strength. Can't happen. So with that in mind... Um, the, the conversation or the subject then sort of becomes about guilt. And I, I want to say that the Bible really doesn't deal with guilty feelings. It deals with actual guilt, which is sin, and the consequence of sin. We tend to deal with guilty feelings. Um, and, and so there's, there is a little difference in that. And even with the raw concept of guilt, you need to know that there's about six or eight New Testament references and just a few Old Testament references to guilt. Far more is the emphasis on forgiveness. Forgiveness is, is throughout the New Testament. But um, in, deep down inside, most of us tend to know that we've messed up, we're broken. And then guilty feelings exist. And there's, there's sort of um, some responses to that that are kind of common that I want to start with before we get in, into the, the letter itself. Um, one approach to handling guilt is to deny it. And, and we say that our feelings of guilt kind of comes from hang-ups that society or the church imposes on us. And so the, the response to that is everybody has a right to do whatever they want to do. There are no absolute moral standards that are binding on us. That is one position that people take rather than come face to face with the reality that there is an absolute truth in Christ and that there is a standard. Some they just go, well, there isn't, and it's all old-fashioned, and we don't have to deal with that. Uh, another approach is uh, to handling guilt is to try and explain it away, and, and we try and look for reasons, perhaps in our upbringing or whatever, that explain away uh, and give us excuses for doing things that we shouldn't do. And, you know, the bad choices that are made are all the fault of somebody else. Granted, how we're raised can often impact what we do, but it's not an excuse for behavior that's inappropriate. It's really not. It's still a personal choice. And yet, um, sort of denying personal responsibility is another very popular thing that people do um, in an attempt to rid ourselves of those guilty feelings. A third approach uh, is to punish ourselves. Um, and because people have guilty feelings, sometimes they will sabotage anything good in their own lives. This happens more than you might think. As if somehow um, that if they could just, uh, uh, if they suffer, um, then, then they don't have to feel guilty or deal with that even in the process. Although it, it never works and it just deepens our sense of guilt and worthlessness in the long run. Another approach uh, and this is typically the religious approach, which is I'm not saying in a good way, um, is to construct a system of do's and don'ts that we can live up to. And then we um, sort of reassure, reassure ourselves of our own goodness by meticulously keeping to the rules we construct. 
And if we still feel guilty, then we compare ourselves to others who don't live up to the high standards that we're imposing on ourselves. And uh, we remind ourselves of how much better we are. And again, this has been a favorite approach of the, the established religious communities of the day. And then a, a fifth approach, and the final approach, is just enjoy sin. Who cares? Uh, uh, you know, and those, uh, your, your, your conscience will eventually sort of stop screaming out at you that something's not right if you just let yourselves go full out into whatever you're doing. But, you know, at that, um, it doesn't work either because that's the one that gets you late at night, generally when you're all alone. Um, I mean, in my own life, I remember feeling like that. Like I was, before I knew Christ, man, I was out doing what I thought was, you know, what I'd always wanted to do, partying all night long and, and out in clubs and just doing stuff. But I, every now and again, I remember waking up two or three in the morning and, and being all, and just sitting in a chair rocking and thinking to myself, there's gotta be something else. That's that last deep seated. And well, then I'd plunge back into the darkness trying to forget about it. So there's this, this guilty feeling sort of that, that we're trying to, that we come up with all sorts of ways to deal with. And yet, like I said, Scripture really doesn't deal with guilt feelings. Um, it speaks of real guilt, which is a, a responsibility for acts of sin. And, and like I said, it's, there's uh, six New Testament references to guilt and 17 Old Testament references. And of the Old Testament references, most of them are found in Leviticus 4 to 6. And, and they're found in reference to dealing with guilt with offerings and uh, sacrifices. And so um, the Bible most often speaks to us of forgiveness. And the word for forgiveness, the root word in both the Old and the New Testament, which is fascinating, has the same meaning, which is to send away. Um, the, the idea behind forgiveness is to send away. And, and what that means is uh, what is sent away is, is not feelings of guiltiness that's aroused by our sin or inadequacy, but the actual sin itself is what's sent away. It's sin that's forgiven and sent away. Big difference. It's sin that's forgiven and sent away. And, and this act of forgiveness that God made available to us in Christ brings us tremendous new freedom. In Hebrews 8.12, it said, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And again, in Hebrews 10.17, uh, he says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. So yeah, in dealing with this idea of, of guilt and, and guilty feelings, um, what you need to know is that in Christ, we've been forgiven so that we don't have to have guilty feelings. In fact, when you're feeling, those guilty feelings are most often coming at us from the enemy. We have to deal with the actual guilt of things that we're doing, but guilty feelings that try and steal life from us are, aren't what we're talking about because forgiveness has the idea of it being sent away, sin being sent away, for, for, forgotten. God forgets it. He sends it away, which is amazing when you think about it. And that's what's found in Christ. And that brings tremendous freedom. That's how we can go into the most holy place. That's how we have access to the, the literal presence of God. Um, when we come into Christ to him, that sin has been dealt with and taken away. It's gone. It's gone. And, and in Christ, that's what we have to remember. But to get to the point where we come to know that freedom, we have to deal with the grim facts that Paul presents in these first three chapters. Because if we don't realize that we're guilty before God and utterly hopeless in ourselves, um, we won't face what we need to deal with 
And, and we'll, we'll just keep struggling in our own futile attempts to deal with those guilt feelings that never work. And we'll never turn to Christ for release and freedom because that's where it's found. And so that's sort of a, a run-in to what we're dealing with today. All right, Romans 1, 1 through 32. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you. In my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Those first 17 verses are are the good news of chapter one. We'll get back to those in a minute. Now comes the more difficult stuff, beginning in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires to their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than creator who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men uh, committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. 
They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these, these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And there ends the word of God in Romans chapter 1. Okay, so this chapter starts out with some awesome promises from God. Salvation is available to us. It's not something that we earn, but it's something that comes as a gift that can be received only by faith. This, This is the heart of the good news, this message. God loves us, and he's made a way for us to be in relationship with him forever in Christ. And Paul will, will look into these concepts in those first 17 verses in, in depth in the coming chapters of the book of Romans. But he first wants us to make sure we understand why we need this salvation that he's talking about. Apart from Christ, we are all spiritually dead. Without salvation, we have no spiritual life. We stand guilty and condemned before a holy God. So apart from salvation, by faith in Christ that God offers, we have no hope. That's the point that he's trying to make in these next few chapters. That's why you need a savior. The law wouldn't do it for you. You couldn't do it in your own strength. You needed a savior because apart from him, you're utterly lost. You are spiritually dead in, in who you are uh, when, you, when you're in this world. So he digs into this. Romans 1, 1 and 2. Uh, as the title makes clear, Paul's writing to the church in Rome. I talked about that. He didn't start this church. Um, and again, we're not sure exactly who started it. Um, but most likely, the, the speculation is, take it for what it is, that it was started by people that were present at Pentecost who had come to Jerusalem at that point in time for the, the feast and had been there when the power fell. And in these 3,000 that were added, that some of them were from Rome and went back and started the church that is there um, to this day. And, and so he writes to them saying, look, I want to visit you. I haven't been able to up till now, but I will. Kind of fascinating. He does get to visit Rome, but it's not the way he wants. Um, he prays that he would get there safely, and, which in fact he does. But the way that he safely gets there is that he's you know, taken there because he's a prisoner to stand trial. So it's an interesting idea of how sometimes prayers work out. Um, not always the way we expect, but he certainly gets there and is able to preach. He's able to do exactly what he wanted to do, just not in the way that he thought. You ever had that happen? Not that you ended up in prison, but um, have you ever prayed for something and, 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 it, and, it, and it does work out, but it's so not the way you expected it to work out that you, you just don't think it's working out, but it, it is? So, I mean, you just never know. Anyway, that's a, that's a bunny trail. I don't have time for bunny trails today. Um, verses three through five, then Paul provides a quick summary of the good news that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have opened a door for us of God's grace to be poured out on us that we can have a life with God now and forever. And then in verses six through eight, he said uh, that those who receive this good news of Jesus are invited to belong to the family in God, family of God. We become his people. That's really cool. Uh, it talks about the people of God in the New Testament. The Old Testament too is Israel and in, in the New Testament's we get to join with them as the church. Um, we don't replace them, I believe. We just come alongside, we're grafted in. And, and, uh, and so we become the, you ever think about that? You're the people of God. I, 
I think it will change the way you look at yourself if you'll take that in every now and again, that you're the people of God. You know, in the in Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit, we're, we're the people of, of God, we're the body of Christ, and we're the temple of the Spirit. Pretty cool ways to remember what's going on biblically and scripturally in your life. You are, you are all three. You're the people of God in Christ. You are the body of Christ, and you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity working in us in descriptive ways. Uh, in Romans 1, 9 through 16, Paul says, look, I'm eager to preach the gospel, and he wasn't ashamed of it because it's a message of salvation. It had life-changing power, and it's for everyone. That's why we never need to be ashamed of the gospel. It needs to be presented properly, and again, not in finger-pointing and, and, and condemnation and religiosity. It needs to be presented with love, mercy, and grace, but the gospel has the power to change lives. It has the power to set people free. It has the, the power to help people find life now and forever. We never need to be ashamed of the good news. And Paul said, I'm ready to preach. I'll, I'll go and deal with all that stuff. I've been dealing with it all over the world. Just let me preach um, to you the truth about who Jesus is and what he's come to do to set people free. This good news, he says in Romans 1.17, shows us the righteousness of God and his plan for us to be saved and that our relationship with him is made right by trusting Christ. From start to finish, God declares us to be right with him because of faith and faith alone. That's what he's talking about in that verse. It's from start to finish, it's all by faith. It's, it's all the work of God and us just trusting in and believing in, accepting the work of God in Christ on the cross that we can have life with him. The last chunk of chapter one. Paul takes on the challenge in verses 18 of 32. Of, of demonstrating the spiritual deadness of humanity. And again, our salvation, our understanding of salvation is based upon our awareness of our utter lostness apart from Christ. And, and here's something where we sometimes get confused. Um, Paul makes a point that we don't die spiritually because of sin. Um, the sin that we get ourselves into and the sin that we commit um, demonstrate that we're already spiritually dead. And there's a significant difference. Some people go, well, I was alive, and then see, because if you think that, that because um, um, your, your sin then caused you to, to um, be spiritually dead, you might be able to do something about it. But you were spiritually dead because of the fall, and the fact that you sin is just points to the fact that you're spiritually dead. It's just a, it's a symptom. It's a, it happens. It doesn't excuse it, but it means we need to be spiritually reborn, see, in order to have some hope of overcoming it. And, and in, in order of having some hope of being restored to life, spiritual life with God now and forever, only comes in Christ. So um, rather than read the list of sins and activities that are written in, in the rest of chapter one, and somehow self-righteously pointing at um, these or those and thinking, well, these are bigger than that, um, all of us made the list somewhere. Go back and read it. You're on the list somewhere. Even if you think, oh, well, because I, I saw gossip pop on the list. I guarantee you, you got that one. There was plenty others that, that would get us all in the, in the same boat. We've all sinned. We're a mess. We're lost apart from Christ. We got big issues. We could go, oh, this sin, and then we'll point at these people, and we'll hate these people, and, and obviously God hates these people, and it's not true. God loves people. Amazing love. Demonstrated at the cross. No greater love has ever been displayed than what took place at the cross. No greater love for people has ever been displayed. No greater plan has ever been put in place for us to have a shot 
at restoration to life with God forever, to, to help us get free from the sin that has stolen from us life, to help us break free from the trap of the enemy. No, no greater work or, or demonstration of love has ever been witnessed than the passion that Christ displayed on the cross. There's nothing like it in the universe. So people wanna you know, pick on the church or point at the church and say that we're mean-spirited and we're shallow and we're narrow. We speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we don't need to be ashamed. He is the only way for people to find life now and forever. He's it. And we don't need to be ashamed. We need to do it lovingly. We need to be people who understand we needed grace and mercy. We couldn't make it. We're broken. We're sinners. You could label us whatever you want. Apart from Christ, we are utterly and totally lost and hopeless. But we bring the message of good news. And that's what Paul said he was doing. I'm here to tell you that there's a way. There's hope. You're all a mess. You're all broken. We could sit down and point out everybody's sin and label them and hate them, but it's not what he does. It's not what Jesus does. Jesus just loves them and tells them there's a way. There's a way. And that's what we tell people. We don't try and justify away our sin or use some of those familiar techniques that I talked about in the beginning that, oh, we don't have to deal with it. That's not the case either. But, but we understand that in Christ there's hope and there's help and that the Spirit of God will come and live in us and help us to do the next right thing. And so, so our, our response is that we need to embrace the good news and we need to live for God in Christ now and forever. And that's the heart of what's happening here in the beginning of Romans. So you can take it and do all sorts of other stuff with it, but that's what's going on and that's the point that Paul's making as he brings this book to us. We'll stop it there for today. Um, if you're watching by video, thank you so much for taking this time uh, with us. We know how valuable your time is and we appreciate, appreciate it greatly. And uh, if you've been watching my video in the past and now you've had been trouble looking at me because I've shaved and my lips look funny to you, I apologize. <laughs> but they're still my lips. And uh, I'm, I'm attached to them. That's not bad. So uh, are we done? I'm, I'm not quite. We're shutting down. Thanks for watching. And if there's anything we do, you can email us, write us. We'll pray for you. But we're done, uh, we're done here for today.